I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Spring mornings of May are like no other. As the weather becomes warmer and more humid, insects, bugs and bees start to multiply and frolic during these longer, brighter days. And while some insects wait for the day to warm up a few degrees before getting up, some bumblebees zoom out first thing. With their thick furry coats, they can withstand the cooler mornings and seize the quiet hours to harvest pollen and nectar before the competition has even woken up. You might be picturing a green and pastoral countryside scene, but the city is just as valuable as a source of precious nectar. But if you've only got limited space, then knowing what to grow is essential. Which is why today's episode is filled with all the best information on companion planting in small spaces to create a beautiful garden that's a feast for our eyes as well as for hungry pollinators. We'll be talking with a brilliant mind at RHS Garden Wisley about how they're campaigning to get enough gardeners across the country to grow an arrangement of plants that will provide nectar to support a million bumblebee miles. That's enough to get these bees to the moon and back. And we'll also be hearing from gardening author Lucy Bellamy on which plants to grow together and why. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Let's begin with a trip to RHS Wisley, where a multidisciplinary group of wildlife specialists, entomologists and researchers have been busy creating a plan to grow a million bumblebee miles. Hi, my name's Helen Bostock and I'm the Senior Wildlife Specialist. Hi, I'm Andy Salisbury, I'm Principal Entomologist. Hi, I'm Nick Tew, I'm a researcher looking at plants for pollinators. Hi, I'm Steph Bird and I'm an entomologist. We've put together this concept of what's called a million bumblebee miles. And that's really all about allowing people to plant up some containers. So with Nick's help and his data, we've put together trios of plants. And in fact, we themed those. So we've got be happy, a be healthy and a be calm set of planters. And if we can get everyone to grow these around the UK, in fact, if we can get 50,000 people to plant up one of these containers, we know that there's going to be enough nectar in those plants to fuel bumblebees to fly for an incredible one million miles. So this is the fuel that is really going to be out there helping our bumblebees. And it doesn't matter whether you've got a nice big garden or you've got no garden at all. Maybe you've just got a windowsill or a balcony. Because these are containers that you can put on in the smallest space possible, this is really you know, what this concept is all about. 
the real basis of this project was to encourage people to grow things for bees. You can do this you know, with a single plant, but obviously for this we've gone for a selection of three plants, whether it's for the be healthy, be calm, or be happy boxes. And we focused on bumblebees being the main source here because that's where the most data is, that's the most data we've got. But uh, the UK has 24 species of bumblebee, around 270 species of solitary bee, and then you've got other pollinators, many species of hoverfly, butterfly, moth, other fly, even beetles can come in as well. So even though we focused on bumblebees, these planters will provide for many other pollinators and be a great source of wildlife in your garden. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get down to the juicy stuff. What have we got for people to grow in these lovely planters? So the first one is what we are calling our be healthy planter. And that includes things that you can eat. So what's not to like about that? First of all, we've got a blueberry plant. I'm not going to squeeze one of these into the tiniest of pots. So maybe go for quite a generous size planter here. And then match that with a strawberry plant. These are quite good because they will often cascade a little bit over the sides of a pot. And then fill in the rest of the space with some chives. So chives, of course, great if you want to add perhaps to a salad in the summer. But just remember, if you are snipping some of your chives off to enjoy, don't snip any of the shoots off which have got flower spikes on the end. So you'll you'll be able to distinguish these because they'll finish rather than in sort of tapered end, the top of the stem will have a little round sort of ball on it and that will open out into a lovely purple head. So if you've ever grown ornamental alliums in your garden, you'll recognize this, it's like a small allium and the bees go wild for them. So Nick, I know just even from looking in my own garden that not every flower attracts every type of insects. That trio we've got there, are we going to see different pollinating insects going for the different plants? I know these we're calling these bumblebee planters, but could people see other things? Yeah, so all three plants are important for insect pollinators, but there are some subtle differences. So blueberries, for example, have these, they're in the heather family, they have these kind of bell-shaped flowers that are only accessible to some of the longer-tongued insects, so some of our bumblebees and honeybees, and they can access a huge amount of nectar within these flowers. Strawberries are much more open flower, so you'll get perhaps more solitary bees, more flies, and insects that don't have the same mouth parts that mean they can only access deeper flowers. And strawberries will produce less nectar per flower than blueberries, but um, also more pollen and be accessible to a wide range of pollinators. And then chives are also quite accessible and very nectar-rich, so you should again see quite a variety of different insects visiting those. So that's the bee healthy planter and the insects you'll expect to be visiting it. So Helen, what about the bee calm planter? Yeah, so the bee calm one, well, I'm very much into my mindfulness in the garden. And so this is definitely going to tap into that side of things. So for this one, we've put together lavender, which is everybody's favourite. You're going to need a nice sunny spot for this planter because lavender doesn't do great in shade. And then we've matched that with marjoram or oregano. And that, well, as well as having aromatic foliage, this is an absolute bombshell of a flowering plant because we think of it for the leaves, but actually it produces these tiny little flowers and a loads of them on a single plant right through summer and you'll find all sorts of things visiting that and then the final plant in that group 
is Facelia tanaceti folia. So this might sound like a bit of a mouthful, but it's a lovely lavender coloured flower, which you can grow super easy from seed. In fact, sometimes you buy it, it's listed perhaps as a green manure because it also doubles up in vegetable growing if you want to use green manures. But it's a lovely, pretty flower just to grow on its own. You'll probably have loads of seeds spare. So if you do, don't waste those. Just scatter those around your garden as well. But with those colours, it's a really lovely, calming pastel container. So this has got to be one of my favourites. Yeah, so Nick, I love Phacelia, but can you give us a little bit more on why it's such a good plant for pollinators? Yeah, so Facelia is very rich in nectar, like other members of the borage family. And it will also flower very late in the year, so it will kind of unroll one flower after another as flowers get pollinated and die until relatively late into the year. So along with marjoram, which is another relatively late flowering species, this will keep providing nectar for bees, particularly later into the year when other flowers might be starting to wither away. So Phacelia got to be one of the easiest things you can grow from seed, but that does mean you, you're going to have to wait just a little bit before it gets into the flowering stage. So we have thrown in a lovely alternative, if you'd rather, for this planter, and that's catmint or nepeta. If you've ever had this, maybe you've got like a cottage-style garden. These are plants which, again, are loved by bumblebees. Lovely sort of pale blue flowers, and I think that's a really nice alternative perennial to have in this container if you wanted. But for me, it's Phacelia's got to be in there. Moving on to our final planter, Helen, do you reckon you could talk me through Bee Happy? How will it infuse our pollinating insects? This is a great container, especially if you've got children, because we've picked three plants which are not only colourful, but are easy to grow from seed and handle. So first one in this is snapdragon. How many of you have been able to resist the temptation of poking a snapdragon flower and making it open and close? Well, this is great because this is a flower whose shape even not every pollinator can get into the flower but this is where the lovely big fat bumblebees they can muscle their way in open that entrance to the flower and get to the nectar and the valuable pollen that's inside so as well as it being a fun plant it's one that's going to work for bumblebees the next one is nasturtium so the seeds of this are almost pea-sized so easy to handle easy to sow and actually, this plant works really well as a hanging basket if you wanted, because nasturtium, once that gets going, it will just produce these cascades of foliage that will droop and dangle over the side of either a container or a hanging basket. And then the flowers, they're going to be either in yellows or reds or oranges, so lovely rich colours. And again, nice big flower. Here's an extra bonus for this planter. They are edible as well, so you could pick a few off either of the flowers or of the leaves and pop them into your summer salads. But don't pick too many flowers off because we need to leave some for the bees. And then the last one in this trio is Cosmos. So Cosmos, a lot of people are familiar with this as an annual or a bedding plant. Lovely daisy-like flowers in whites or pinks or deep sort of lovely raspberry purples. So the only thing about this one, I will just make a proviso, and that's that 
there's lots of different cosmos cultivars out there available and some of them are what we call double flowers which means that some of those areas within the center of the flower have been replaced with more petals makes them quite fun to look at but actually that's not great for our bees because that's going to be meaning either they can't access the nectaries or simply that they're not there and the same for the pollen so look for what we call single flowers of cosmos and you'll do well with this one so andy maybe you can paint us a bit of a picture of just what sort of insects we're going to be attracting to this bee happy planter. We've got colourful flowers, but what are we going to be seeing with our buzzing insects? Well, I mean, the answer is a great variety. Again, like with the other boxes, we've got some flowers there, such as the snapdragon, which will attract in the longer tongued pollinators. So some of those lovely fluffy black, yellow and white bumblebees will be coming in for those. But things like the cosmos are more open, so you might get more of these sort of wasp mimic hoverflies and some of the butterflies that come in. And even with this one, uh, you may be lucky enough to have caterpillars of large white butterflies feeding on the nasturtium, which sort of shows some of the extra value that plants can have in our garden as host plants for the larvae as well. So I think what's not to love? We've made these wonderful planters to inspire you. They're easy to grow. Get out there this weekend and get planting. Massive thanks to Helen Bostock, Dr. Andrew Salisbury, Dr. Stephanie Bird and Nick Chu. I love all of the plants in these boxes. I know you think I would say that anyway, but I love watching the bumblebees like the red tailed bumblebees on my allotment. They go absolutely nuts for chives and seeing the carder bees and other earlier flying bees on blueberries in my garden at home is just a real treat. Out of these boxes, I'd probably be most tempted to grow the Be Calm box because that has such amazing human value. So lavender just smells great. You can rub your hands against it even when it's not in flower. Absolutely lovely. And then marjoram as well. Great herb to put on pizza, any kind of tomato-based dish. And there's a whole body of evidence that shows just how wonderful that is. So when I say marjoram, or sometimes known as oregano, oreganum vulgari, and it is a real kind of nectar powerhouse, but something that's great for people as well. If you would like to plant any of these flowers and really give your local bumblebees a boost, then check out our show notes where we've included a link to an article that contains all the plant names and how best to grow them together. Now, in this episode, we're talking a lot about specific plant combinations, and there's a variety of reasons you might want to pair specific things together. You might have heard of the phrase companion planting and you might even have done a bit of it yourself like planting marigolds next to tomatoes or growing sweet corn next to pumpkins. But do you know how it works and why it's so beneficial? I sat down with my co-host, RHS Chief Horticulturist Guy Barter to find out more about companion planting. Hello Guy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you Gareth. I hope you are too. I'm absolutely full of the joys of spring and seeing the allotment growing beautifully everything's really been appreciating this recent bit of rain but tell me about companion planting is this something new is this a fad can you give us a kind of a bit of a background to what companion planting is well basically companion planting is growing two or more plants together with the aim that one plant helps the other one or indeed they both help each other and uh, companion planting has been done for centuries 
and it's always been a, a particular favorite practice of organic gardeners and there's a few people who've made a very great study of it um, bob flowerdew for example mm. so instead of having a monoculture say of a big plot of uh, peas or beans on your allotment you mix things together have a few different plants in there so for example my allotment neighbor grows a row of runner beans and he always plants african marigold or tagetes amongst them and he never has any black fly well, I never have any black fly either, and I don't have any truck with tragedies. But um, it's a, an interesting concept and one that's very difficult to test. So why do you think that is? Why do you think the tragedies or African or French marigold, why might they deter the black fly? Well, um, companion planting, as far as we know, works by a number of methods. One is attraction. Uh, those tragedies attract lots of hoverflies and other beneficial insects that hunt down and parasitize or prey on pests like black fly, which are a nuisance on runner beans. And also tragedies, like a lot of plants, mint, for example, has got a scented foliage. And some people suggest that the scent confuses insects. They come along sniffing for, for carrots, say. They meet some tagetes or some other plant like coriander or fennel, and uh, they can't sniff out the carrots, and so mm -hmm. the carrots are less attacked. And then Interesting. Also, a lot, a lot of people think it's a, a basis for companion planting is diverting pests. So if you plant nasturtiums next to your runner beans or to your cabbages, then the black fly and the cabbage caterpillars go to the nasturtiums and eat those and leave your crops alone. Interesting. So, so it's kind of a sacrificial, you can have a kind of a sacrificial element. So eat these nasturtiums and leave, leave my lovely tender stem broccoli alone. Exactly. It's hard on the, the nasturtiums, but uh, sometimes you've got to be quite ruthless in gardening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nature is always pretty ruthless itself, isn't it? It is. And there's a, another way that's of great interest and one that has actually been scientifically researched and that's called masking. So you make your crops less apparent to the insects. And this was tested at the Horticultural Research Institute at the University of Warwick, where carrots and clover were sown underneath brassicas. And so the, the cabbage root fly, that's such a pesky nuisance among brassicas, obviously hasn't got very acute eyesight because it can't see the brassicas if they're against a green layer of clover and carrots. Brilliant. So it's a bit like um, when people put those little collars on their brassica seedlings, but without having to buy any plastic or any sort of sundries, you can kind of grow your own plant protection. Well, it has the same effect. And of course, the collars actually physically stop the cabbage root fly from oh, getting okay. down to the roots. Um, mm. But here you're actually making the crop less apparent. But also the other thing is when they were doing this research at um, Warwick, they also tested the effect of scent. We were talking just now about the scent confusing pests, but they couldn't find any evidence in those experiments for scent ah. working. But they did find experiments um, for the masking effect. Mm. That's really interesting because it shows that it kind of works in lots of different ways. Because I've got a little bed of perennial kale and I've grown some trefoil underneath it. And the reason that I grew that was so that it would maybe pull a bit of nitrogen from the air, kind of do a bit of enriching and maybe pull in some pollinators as well. But it's really interesting that it could also be masking and helping kind of put off any pests as well. It just shows that there's, there's a lot of different facets to this one idea of companion planting. Yeah, there are. And of course, so one of the things that uh, really interests people is the idea of diversity. So that if you have a diverse population of plants, as you do in nature, you don't mm. see many epidemics of mildew, say, rushing through a, a forest floor or the side of downland wildflowers or a hay meadow. Yeah. So if you mix your crops together, you were talking about the Three Sisters, where um, maize and pumpkins and uh, mm. French beans are grown together. 
there you're kind of mimicking a natural environment and making life difficult for anything that might prey yeah. on these. And also they use different parts of the soil and different nutrients of the soil. So in theory, adding diversity to your garden is going to give some worthwhile benefits. Because mm. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? You avoid a monoculture because if you have that monoculture, that's an absolute invitation for pests and diseases. It's like, come here, there's tons of stuff you can attack. You're going to have an absolute field day, whereas you kind of mix things up and it's a bit more confusing for those pests or a little bit less easy for a, a disease or something to establish. But is there anything, you know, we need to watch out for? We've covered lots of potential benefits of companion planting, but are there any things, if people are deciding what to companion plant themselves, is there anything we need to kind of be aware of or, or watch out for? Well, I mean, the biggest danger, I think, is that you end up with too many plants and you, what you're effectively doing is you're growing your own weeds. And most of these companion plants like tagetes and nasturtiums are not very weedy. They're not going to cause a great deal of competition, but it's still something to consider. And uh, when you're masking with your layers of trefoil or clover, mm. I found that uh, weeding can be very difficult because you can't hoe the crop or you'd kill your trefoil. So it's hand weeding, yes. with a bucket and gloves, pulling up the weeds one yeah. by one. Um so that, 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 I find, can be quite difficult. And, mm. of course, there's more work and expense, although once you get used to it, you can start saving the seeds from your tagetes and your nasturtiums for future years. So um, you can bring the expense yeah. down a bit. Or if you're um, a slightly dodgy compost maker like me, they will appear from your compost anyway, because <laughs> I get all sorts of things come out of my compost, and quite often the um, tagetes re-sow themselves, along with a few nettles and things. That's a form of diversity too. It is indeed. And the other benefit is that plots actually look attractive. You know, some people like nice, neat, straight rows, carefully weeded, everything uniform. Other people like to see things a bit mixed up with some flowers. And they like to see the wildlife fluttering about and the butterflies and bees making use of a very mixed um, planting with lots of different kinds of flowers. Absolutely. And even some of the more terrible, in inverted commas, weeds, things like ground elder, have been shown to bring in parasitic wasps and things like that. So quite often, if we dare to let nature run its course, there are quite often some, some good sort of unexpected side effects. You're quite right there, Gareth. And one of the things that uh, is done quite a lot now is, is growing nettles in pear orchards. In commercial pear orchards, uh, the pear sucker, a little sap-sucking insect, does terrific damage to the buds in the spring. It's not usually a garden problem because we don't feed our pears with lots of nitrogen fertiliser like commercial growers do, but it's an absolute menace in commercial orchards. So they leave patches of nettles at intervals through the orchard, and those support a kind of bug called the amphicorid bugs, and the amphicorid bugs build up to large numbers in the nettles, go out among the pears, as long as you're careful with which insecticides you use on the pears, and keep down the pests. Brilliant. Isn't that wonderful? Just harvesting the power of, of weeds and wild creatures to increase our harvests and do it almost for free. Yes, I never tire of telling gardeners that there's an invisible hand helping them all the time in nature and that uh, the pests that can be such a nuisance are actually held in check and are food for a wide range of wildlife. So as long as you don't disrupt things too much, then you can sort of rely on nature to do some of your pest control and keep a, a natural balance. Thanks, Guy. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm really feeling the love for companion planting now. I'm going to be getting my tomatoes in my greenhouse in probably a couple of weeks' time, and I will definitely be putting the, uh, the tagetes, the French marigolds, with them. But have you got any particular combinations that you're going to be planting over the next few weeks? Well, yes, this year um, I'm going to do a little bit of companion planting, as I always do. I've, in my brassica patch, which is very important to me, I love a 
love cabbages and Brussels sprouts and broccoli. I planted a row of carrots of uh, these are an old fashioned carrot with uh, a great deal more leaf than modern carrots have still good roots. And that's hope hoping to confuse the uh, pests in the cabbage patch. I'm also very fond of beetroot, so I put my beetroot down the middle between a row of cabbages, so I hope I'll be harvesting baby beetroot. And of course, um, you have to net brassicas in this region mm. against pigeons, but it also keeps out the deer, and deer are extremely fond of beetroot, so I'm killing two stones with one bird there. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, you've made my tummy rumble. Thanks again, Guy. My pleasure. <laughs> So, all in all, if you haven't spent much time planning out your garden yet and thinking how best to take advantage of companion planting, I'd highly recommend it. Now, for our final feature, we're going to talk with a writer who knows exactly how you can set your garden abuzz. Lucy Bellamy is a garden journalist and author. Her previous book, Brilliant and Wild, was the Garden Media Guild Practical Book of the Year back in 2018. Lucy's unique guides have been praised for keeping gardening simple, expressive and joyful. So we're very lucky to be learning from her in her newest book, Grow 5, which is a great gardening recipe book that features gorgeous combinations that can easily be grown in urban gardens with limited space. That's something I know all about because I have an urban garden and it's absolutely tiny. And I really know that every plant really matters and it kind of matters how it looks next to its neighbours as well. So I'm really interested to hear from Lucy. And I love growing edibles. There's nothing quite like being able to eat your own hard work. So I asked Lucy what five edibles she'd recommend pairing together in a planter. So when you're choosing edibles, particularly if you're growing them in a pot, you need to think about choosing edibles that like the same condition. So five great plants to put together would be something like a lemon verbena, which likes a lot of sun and a gritty soil. I like Mrs Burns lemon basil, which is a basil again with a bit of a citrusy flavour. You can pair this with Pelagonium atar of roses. Again, another plant that's happy in full sun, not a hungry plant, so happy in quite a scratchy soil. My fourth and fifth plants are a rosemary, Mrs Jessup's upright, which as the name suggests grows up rather than out. And finally, sage, which is a really lovely textural plant. It looks absolutely gorgeous, as well as tasting good and being great for recipes. So I put all these five edibles together in a pot because they're all plants that need absolutely minimal water. It's always better to use one big pot rather than lots of little ones. It makes watering simpler. If you want to go away, these plants will happily wait for your return. Probably be even better and more flavourful as a result. So this bucket of edibles is a really lovely one to have in your garden, even if you end up not eating any of them. It's got a really nice mixture of textural leaves and it will give such a lovely scent when you walk past. Lots of the edibles will have tiny flowers which are also good for pollinators. Growing your own edibles is hard to beat no matter how tiny your space. You'll get flavours that you can't buy or that are really difficult to find in the shops. And there's nothing more pleasing than having friends round, making them something really nice to eat and then telling them, I grew that myself. 
I can't agree more. Nothing beats the satisfaction of turning a tiny seed into a delicious piece of food, especially if you can share it with your friends. Like Lucy, I love lemon verbena. It's one of those plants that's sort of a bit borderline hardy, so I tend to keep it in the greenhouse over the winter, although it has survived this winter outdoors. It makes a beautiful, beautiful tea. It's really, really refreshing if you've overindulged and at the end of the night you just want something to kind of cleanse your palate. Absolutely fabulous. Basil, I always grow basil. And what I do when I plant my tomatoes in the greenhouse is I, I buy the little cheap supermarket pots of growing basil and I divide them into two or three or even four sometimes depending on how many plants there are. And I split them up and I plant them in between my tomatoes. And by the end of sort of August time, they've almost become like these shrubs. And I pick all of the leaves at once and make fresh pesto. It's one of those lovely moments in the gardening year. You're just absolute kind of celebration. And that's a food I love to share with friends because like proper, proper fresh pesto is a real, real treat. Now sage, brilliant for all sorts of dishes. One quite unexpected thing that I like to do with it is if you get some quite good big healthy leaves is to dip them in a light tempera batter and fry them and they make a fantastic starter, really good on a warm summer evening with a delicious glass of cold white wine. And edibles aren't just great for eating, many of them can be wonderful for pollinators to enjoy too. I found this out when I let my Cavallo Nero go to seed and it made this enormous cloud of bright yellow flowers and it brought down all the honeybees and all sorts of, all sorts of pollinating insects and they absolutely loved it. As we've learned, they need all the sugary sweet nectar they can get. And while rosemary in particular provides a great meal for bees, Lucy's put together an even better arrangement that's great for all sorts of pollinators and for those who enjoy a beautifully designed garden. So my recipe for May, I've called Pointless Plan. Nature's got a way of arranging itself into really beautiful and harmonious patterns. And this plan adopts a pointillist approach with points of colour working together to create bold shapes. Different types of insect like different shapes of flowers. And so this is a really useful one for attracting lots of beneficial pollinators to your garden. So to create this plan, you would need to use Allium Miami, Circium atripurpureum, a fennel, you could use a bromfennel, but I've used a green one, Iris sable, which is a scented iris in vibrant purple and stiper gigantia which is, has brilliant seed heads later in the year. You can create this plant at any time as long as your soil isn't frozen but it will really start to come to fruition in late spring early May. You'll have the rich purple irises and the violet alliums and these kind of bright red inky blobs of circium. It's a kind of thistle so the flowers are relatively small but held really high on long stems. The froth of fennel which I'm using here mainly for its foliage is a lovely foil for the bejeweled colours of the other flowers. It's absolutely amazing to go out on a summer day and see this I've planted summer in my own garden and literally the sound of the hum of the bees when you go out is almost in the loveliest way it's almost deafening I absolutely love Circium rivulari. It is a star plant in terms of pollinators and its human value as well. It's like a thistle on steroids I guess so it has these wonderfully rich maroon flowers that draw in bumblebees. It's funny, when I do picture research for articles online, it's one of those plants that every photo of it seems to have a bumblebee on it. It's actually harder to get one without a bee on it than it is to get one with. 
And it actually makes a really lovely combination with fennel as well, because the Circium has these really kind of chunky leaves and it's quite solid, whereas fennel is much more airy and light. And if you pick a bronze leaf fennel, the bronze of the fennel leaves just really picks up with the purple of the Circium. And it's a really lovely combination. And they're all pretty easy plants to grow as well. This is another thing. Lucy hasn't just picked some particularly rare or difficult to grow things. They're all widely available and pretty easy to grow. I think when you are growing in containers, it's worth using a really good soil-based compost and be prepared to feed plants in containers as well to really get the best results. I think the message that's come through in this programme is that gardens can be really valuable whatever size they are. And even if you just have space for a couple of containers, you can make something that is beautiful to look at but has real wildlife value. If you want to find out more about this and you haven't heard it already, listen to our podcast episode on the 24th of February, Saving Swifts, Pollinator News and Gardening on Clay. Well, that's about it for this episode of the podcast. I'm off into the garden to see if I can spot any more bees. My absolute favourite is the hairy-footed flower bee. The males have this lovely gingery fur on their backs and they have these incredible long wispy hairs on their legs and on their feet as well. They're a really fun thing to find and a lovely and important native pollinator. And don't forget that the biggest gardening event in the calendar finally arrives next week. The RHS Chelsea Flower Show is back and we'll be transporting you there with this podcast where you'll be able to listen to all the sounds of the world's greatest flower show. I'll be there and I hope you come along too, be that in person or by listening along. Until next time, from me, Gareth Richards, thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.